Today on Mormon Discussion Podcast, we are going to dive into the mechanisms of Scientology, and we're going to compare it to Mormonism, and we're going to talk about it from the point of view of looking at high-demand fundamentalist religions and what are the mechanisms within them. I hope you sit back, buckle your seatbelt, enjoy the ride as we tune in to Mormon Discussions episode with Tony Ortega, journalist who covers Scientology. But first, a word from our sponsor. Next time you're in Southern Utah, be sure to check out Family Pond. We'll change your mind about pawn shops. From our on-site gemologist and our huge selection of diamonds and wedding sets to our rare and out-of-print LDS books and memorabilia, Family Pond is a great experience for the whole family. And as always, every child gets a free toy. Give them a call today or check out their website at FamilyPondUtah.com. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Tony Ortega, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Thanks for having me on. Doing well. Excellent. Glad for the chance to, to have this conversation. Um, I just wanted to, to maybe just briefly introduce you kind of with the, just a generic introduction, but then I wanted you maybe just to kind of better introduce yourself. Uh, Tony Ortega is an American journalist and blogger who is best known for his daily blog about the Church of Scientology called The Underground Bunker. He is the author of the nonfiction book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, How the Church of Scientology Tried to Destroy Paulette Cooper. Uh, welcome to the, the program, and, and if you would, wouldn't mind just uh, maybe sharing a brief introduction. Uh, um, a little bit more than that might just be that I'm the former editor-in-chief uh, of The Village Voice, um, and uh, I've been covering Scientology for more than 20 years. And um, I don't know. And uh, Oh, and I, I appear in Alex Gibney's HBO documentary about Scientology going clear, and I also make some appearances on Leah Remini's show, uh, Scientology in the Aftermath. Gotcha. Awesome. Today, what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about some of the mechanisms within Scientology and and draw some connections to some of the mechanisms I see within my own faith of Mormonism and, and just to get an idea of some of the things that high-demand fundamentalist religions do generally and to see how these things kind of cross over from one faith to another. And I wonder maybe if you'd just start us off talking a little bit about how Scientology approaches the internet and how they, how they approach with their members, like what's okay to look up online or how to, how to use the computer and what, what is appropriate and what is inappropriate boundaries for, for within Scientology. Sure. Well, that's definitely changed, uh, over the years. Uh, at one time, uh, Scientology was so worried about what its members might see online 
that in the early 90s, they sent out CDs to all members telling them that they wanted them to, uh, they, they created their own page that helped them create their own I am a Scientologist page that in this hosted website of the church. But what they weren't told that was that it contained a filtering program that would keep them from websites that had certain keywords uh, that they hoped would keep them from websites that were critical of Scientology. This got the nickname the Net Nanny, and it was very famous. But I said that was the early 90s, and so they, they did their best to try to just control people's access to the Internet. And then I think for a long time we all just assumed that, that Scientologists were pretty good at policing themselves and just weren't very interested in going online. But of course today it's, you know, everything on these, you know, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram are so ubiquitous that they're as much a part of Scientologists' lives as anybody's. So the situation today is that among the, uh, workers that, that are the most Dedicated. They're called the C organization, and there's about three or four thousand of them. Uh, these are the folks that sign billion-year contracts and go years without seeing other family members or having a single day off. They have basically no access to the internet at all. When they do, when they are allowed to go online, it's supervised. The, these people have very restricted access. But that's only a minority of the people in Scientology. Most people are what they call publics. These are the people that. That, that take courses and are involved in Scientology, but they don't actually work for the church. Those people you see on Facebook, on inter- on Instagram, on uh, on Twitter, but so they have to police themselves. And so the question is how? So how do you how do you how do you keep a Scientologist who's active on Facebook and has lots of friends? How do you keep them from reading about Leah Remini's show, Alex Gibney's documentary? the latest news about Scientology. Well, they're very, very good at policing themselves because they know that if that there are Scientologists who spend a lot of time watching each other to make sure that they don't friend somebody who's uh, like an ex-member of the church or a journalist. And if they do, if they're caught looking at this material or, or friending somebody they shouldn't, they literally get hauled in for an interrogation. Uh, Scientology is very much a snitching culture. It's an interrogation culture, and people are often turned in by their own family members. They're, the, the children are taught this very young, that if dad is watching something he shouldn't, you need to file what's called a knowledge report, or KR, with the church. And they will do this. I mean, Leah Remedy has said she actually would turn in her own husband if he did things he wasn't supposed to do. And you get hauled in for an interrogation. These interrogations are called sec checks, which is short for security check, they can last weeks, and they cost a lot of money. I talked to a woman who uh, turned out she was watching Leah Remedy on Dancing with the Stars. It wasn't even about Scientology, and because, but because Leah Remedy was this you know, apostate defector, uh, she got hauled in for a three-week in- interrogation that cost her more than $4,000. So you can see why there's a big incentive not to look at things you're not supposed to see. Mm, mm, interesting. Um, within Mormonism, you mentioned this beginning thing, this campaign they did where it was uh, was the idea of I'm a Scientologist. And, and Mormonism's done the same thing where they've allowed people to put up profiles. They did uh, a, a movie, I think maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, where it was, I, you know, I am, an, I am a Mormon was the name of the campaign. And so 
kind of this, the similarity between wanting to put the, the face of members out there, just these normal looking people who have lives just like you and me and, and to kind of try and draw people to kind of look at that and to, to see if there may be any interest in joining. I'm curious though, in terms of belief in Scientology, and let me frame it from a Mormon perspective, within our LDS theology, we teach members that you're to study out the church and then you, you pray about it and you get a spiritual answer and you can depend on that spiritual answer as giving you the truth of whether Mormonism is true or not. And then throughout your membership, throughout your life as a member of the church, you can easily go back and recall these spiritual experiences. I'm curious within Scientology, what it is, what is the mechanism that has these folks being sure that they're right and in looking at the rest of the world as outsiders? Is there something that, that the church does to uh, essentially give people some feeling of belief or intellectual belief or is it emotional? How do they, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, there's something similar that uh, among the people that I've talked to, uh, you have to understand that when L. Ron Hubbard started all this, it was with a book he came out in 1950 and the title was Dianetics. And I don't think most people pay attention to the subtitle, but it's very important. The subtitle is the modern science of mental health and Scientologists will tell you they're not asked to believe anything, that this is an exact science they're doing, where they use this electronic device that helps them remember. Uh, initially, the idea was to help remember you your experience in the womb, because Hubbard told them that traumatic experiences they had as a fetus were actually affecting their adult lives, and if they could remember those experiences, they could basically lessen their effect. Um and then it, that was the very the very beginning. Then then within a couple of years, they weren't satisfied just remembering the womb, and they started to try to remember what had happened to them in past lives. And so much of Scientology auditing is about trying to recover what happened to you centuries ago, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, even billions of years ago on other planets. And this device is there. It is supposed to confirm the reality of those memories. Uh, now, you know, people who, who have left will tell you that they now realize that they were just making that up as they went along. But to them at the time, it was very, very real. So even though they call themselves the Church of Scientology and they have tax exempt status as a religious organization and they will say things like, this is my church, this is my religion, most Scientologists will tell you that what attracted them in the beginning and what kept them around was the idea that they were actually doing science and that these were actual memories they were recovering from millions of years ago. The other thing that is kind of uh, a parallel to what you're saying is almost every single Scientologist I've ever talked to, and I've talked to hundreds, um, will tell you that it was, it was their early experiences that hooked them. And then the higher they went on the – it's called the bridge to total freedom is this – rubric of courses and exams uh, and auditing that you go through, the higher they went, the less sense it made, the less, you know, and they would get, you know, Paul, uh, Paul Haggis describes it well in the movie Going Clear. He would say, you know, well, this next level didn't really work for me. It wasn't, didn't make a lot of sense, but I'll keep going because there's more to do. Um, and then when they leave, almost every single person I've talked to said, well, you know, the first, the first thing I did was really cool. 
And I, you know, I'll give you one example. Maybe this has some, maybe this will, will have some resonance in Mormonism. I remember I was talking to a, a, an older guy and he told me how his daughter had, had, had really bugged him about coming in and taking Scientology courses. And he finally went and, uh, in, in the first course that he sat through, uh, the instructor asked everyone to think about a thing, an object that they had lost. And he, the first thing that came to his mind was this wristwatch that he really wished he still had. And they went around the room and everybody had to say what it was. And this was, when you first start out in Scientology, you'll be in a course with other people later. It's just you and an auditor. But anyway, uh, so he described this wristwatch and then, um, it was a wristwatch that his father had given him and he really was sad that he lost it. Then the instructor asked everyone to think of a person that they had lost and the gentleman said it came to him, and of course he had been thinking about his father because of the wristwatch. And, and and he said, you know, he was a very stoic, middle-aged man, and here he was just like crying his eyes out, talking about his father and how badly he missed him, and that and that the watch was sort of symbolic of that. And he said to me, Tony, I was walking on a layer of air for the next week. I felt so good that I had you know, spoken about this in a group. I never talk about my feelings in a group. And now, you know, 30, and he said that feeling of that initial day kept him hooked on Scientology for the next 25 years. He said it was never that good again. I never understood the higher levels. None of it made any sense. But I, 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 I mistakenly attributed that feeling to L. Ron Hubbard. And he said now, later, he realized it's just, you know, a very simple psychological effect. Of course it feels good to remember things and talk about your feelings. And that's essentially what Scientology is at one level, is you're talking about your problems, you're talking about your memories with another human being who listens and listens carefully. And and that's, I, of course people feel good doing that. But uh, to, you know, that L. Ron Hubbard discovered some magical secrets of the universe, I think that's the part that's troubling. So, but that's that's kind of what hooks them. It's not that they have, Hey, you know, maybe that is just like what you're saying, but that's that, that initial euphoria they feel after talking about themselves is generally what hooks them on Scientology for many years. So I want to talk a little bit more about the auditing and, and you talked a little bit about later on in these steps, it becomes one on one and is just kind of a private interview. And within Mormonism, there's the same kind of thing going on. Which is that on, you know, a semi-annual or annual basis, uh, and you really can't avoid it if you're going to be an active, believing, participating Latter-day Saint, at least once every two years, you essentially have to sit down with a leader of the congregation and, and have an interview to kind of establish whether you're still worthy to fully participate, uh, in the church. And I wanted you to maybe just hit on for a moment kind of the auditing and, and what the purpose of that is and who's doing the auditing. What kind of training do they have? I mean, is it, is it something where, um, is just anybody called to be an auditor? Is there certain people that are picked from? Can you maybe talk a little bit about that, uh, that mechanism within Scientology? Sure. Uh, the bridge to total freedom has two sides to it, two halves. One is the processing side. That's the auditing you go through. The other is the training side. And that's how you become an auditor. And so within Scientology, uh, it's considered, you know, uh, uh, a very dedicated thing you have to go through, and there are various levels, uh, different classes of auditors that can only audit at a certain level, and to get to the, 
once you get to the very high levels of the bridge, only a class 12 auditor can be your auditor. Uh, it's all, you know, Scientology is, uh, extremely bureaucratic and hierarchical. Um, and these train, these auditors go through a lot of training, uh, to learn how to, what they're doing is the person who's being audited is holding the sensors to this machine, which basically just measures skin galvanism, which is a tiny current of electricity going through your skin. And as the people are being questioned, and, and I have copies of some of these questions, they're just really basic sort of uh, questions like, uh, when has someone controlled you? When has someone not controlled you? And you you come up with an answer, and you go through these hundreds of questions, and the the auditor is watching the needle of this machine to look for it to react. What they're looking for is that as you're answering these questions, Various things, you're remembering various things, you're having various thoughts, and the auditor, his job, his or her job is to spot when you hit on something that's uh, a, a source of trouble or a source of what they call charge. There, that, when you just answered that question, what were you thinking then? And then that maybe brings up a color or a, a memory or an object. Okay, let's talk about that. And you go down this avenue. And you're trying to remember things that happened to you many years ago, many centuries ago. Um, so it just gets uh, more and more uh, intense and, 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 and at the higher level. I have to say, I've, I've seen the questions. They don't change all that much. I, I think the biggest difference between uh, beginning level auditing and the higher level auditing is mainly the cost. I mean, you get to the upper levels of auditing, and we're talking eight to $900 an hour for this stuff. And the questions really haven't changed all that much. Um, and so, and so, and it's incredibly repetitive. As Leah Remedy showed recently on her show, they actually did a little bit on, on camera. But I, I know this one auditing level, for example, it's, 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 uh, part of the superpower set of auditing. Uh, and one of the highest technical people that ever left the church described it to me. In this one rundown they do, there's just one question. And you're paying tens of thousands of dollars for this. That one question is, where do you feel safe? So you're sitting there, you hold those sensors, the auditor's looking at the other side of the machine at the, at the needle and asks you, where do you feel safe? And you have to come up with some kind of an answer. They ask it again and again and again. And that's it. Hundreds of dollars an hour. And I asked that, I told, you know, I told the technical person, I was, like, I was kind of astonished by that. And he said, well, but Tony, you'll be amazed at what kind of answer you come up with the th- on the 300th time they ask you that. Which tells you it's, it's, you know, it's supposed to put you into a little bit of a trance state, a little bit of a hypnotic state, and you're supposed to remember all these crazy things. But that's, that's kind of what auditing is about. It's very repetitive. It's, uh, it's, it's about getting you to come up with revelations about yourself, whether it's memories or thoughts and what they call a cognition. You have a, you have some kind of a, uh, a, a, a moment where you think you have this ma- a major thought. About who you are and what you're about. That it, it, Scientology is amazingly inwardly focused. Uh, you know, people always ask me, do they have do they have Sunday services? Well, they do have chapels in the new the new churches, but it's it's purely for public relations. Because Scientology is not about a group activity and hearing a sermon or a homily and hearing about things that happened thousands of years ago to you know you know. Jesus or Buddha or, or Muhammad or whatever. In Scientology, it's all about you. They're sitting there asking you questions about yourself, 
and what you remember about your life or your past lives. And I, you know, it, it, I would say that it, it's, it's very narcissistic that way. It, it is the auditing used. I mean, I've, I've watched going clear. I've watched some of the Leah Remini, uh, programs is maybe talk for a moment about how auditing is also used in a way to, uh, essentially track people or keep, keep, aware of like whether they're doing the right things or whether they're breaking some boundary rules that Scientology has. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the other half of it is, I mean, auditing on the one side is supposed to help you understand yourself and remember these things and deal with traumas that you've been through. And that's, that's really what people are paying for. That's what they want. You know, when they leave, some people leave, that's, and you know, they want to get rid of the things they didn't like about the church. What they tell me is, but I do want to keep auditing. That I like, the counseling. That's great. But that little device, the e-meter, while it is supposed to be confirming their memories, it also has another effect. They believe it, it can read your mind. And so it becomes a very powerful tool for interrogation. So especially at the higher levels, before you can get to that auditing you want to do, you first have to go through a sec check. And you had mentioned something about an annual or semi-annual sort of like uh, uh, interrogation you go through. They go through them a lot more than that. I mean, uh, it's, it's you know, there's one particular level, for example, OT7 near the very top, where everyone knows every six months you have to go through one of these security interrogations. And and it's it's very much to find make sure that you're still a member in good standing, that you haven't had any bad thoughts about David Miscavige, the leader of the church, that you haven't talked to any reporters, that you haven't talked to the FBI. I mean, they're very explicit about this stuff. I remember uh, Luis, uh, Segura, uh, Luis Garcia was telling me that when he was on uh, OT8, uh, very top level, uh, uh, and this is this is very typical. I've talked to other people about this. Before they allow you to actually do that auditing level that you paid fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for, you first have to go through multiple interrogations to make sure that you're eligible for it. And he said at one point they spent two days asking him, are you, are you in league with the FBI? Are you talking to the FBI? That one question over and over for two straight days. And he just come, you know, just before they would allow him to go on the ship, you have you know, OTA, you can only get on the cruise ship in the Caribbean. So yeah, I mean, Scientologists are constantly being, uh, um, interrogated. Uh, they have to be, as Mark Headley has said, there are no secrets in Scientology. You have to talk about all of your sexual experiences. Uh, it, they, in recent years, they've had a real obsession with masturbation. And we hear this from Scientologists that have been pulled into these investigations. Uh, they'll, they'll charge you $3,000 to, to, to question you about your masturbation habits for a couple of weeks in a row. Uh, which, you know, is a really kind of a disgusting way for a church to make money, but that's, that's their current obsession. Yeah, Mormonism is asking about that too, but they're not charging anything to ask the question. Um, you kind of spoke to this when you talk about these auditing sessions and how much money you pay and how long they take. And I know that Scientologists have to uh, essentially show up at the centers so often and, and have a certain amount of time that they're committed to this. And, I, and as I look at uh, my, my Mormon faith, my LDS faith, it, it becomes clear that Mormonism is very different from other Christian denominations in the sense that 
it binds you to the tribe by giving you so many things to do and so many time commitments tr- during the week that you really have little time uh, to to be outside the organization having friendships and associating and doing things and, and there's and I should say there's lots of mechanisms that do that we have a health code for instance so you're just not going to go out on friday night with other friends and have a drink instead you're going to essentially stay at home and Mormonism gives you these mechanisms where you've got something to do on Tuesday night. You've got something to do on Wednesday night. You've got to take your kids to the church on a certain evening. You hold a certain responsibility in the church. And so you you have these things you have to do through the week. Um, maybe talk for a moment about the time commitment that Scientologists who are active in their, in their faith, um, the time commitment that they are uh, absorbed into in participating with Scientology. Yeah, uh, Scientology definitely has something very similar to that. Um, Leah Remedy, for example, mentioned that when she was taping King of Queens full-time, um, she was going to the Celebrity Center every night. So after a full day of taping, she would still go down to the Scientology mm-hmm. Celebrity Center and put in her, you know, two hours or whatever, um, to, uh, that was part of Scientology. In fact, Scientology sells its auditing in what are called intensives of 12 and a half hours. And, and sometimes people ask me, why do they sell it in 12 and a half hours? Because that's the amount of time you spend if you go to the org five nights a week for two and a half hours each night. So that's, that's the expected commitment is at least five nights a week. You're supposed to be there doing this. Um, and the other, and, and keep in mind, if you're going to be audited the next day, you know you can't drink that night. So, and and then and Scientology's very much against any other drugs. So Scientologists will go years without drinking anything because, well, I might be in session tomorrow. I, I remember talking to a a woman who had finally left after thirty years, and uh, she said it felt so sort of uh, 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 naughty <laughs> to have a, a glass of wine with her husbands, and they were so thrilled that they could finally enjoy. A glass of wine. Uh, so yeah, Scientology does the same thing in that, um, you know, if, if you're not going to the org, uh, or moving up the bridge, uh, people will start asking you about it, you know, and, and are you on lines? Why haven't I seen you at the latest event? Uh, and they police each other. Like I said, it's a snitching culture. You'll get turned in. Uh, but on the other, on the other hand, uh, Scientologists, are out in the world and they have jobs out in the world and um, uh, some people are more active than others. So I'm not sure it's quite as controlling that way for the public, so I'm speaking. I'm not, I'm not talking about the employees. Uh, but many people have a hard time leaving because after a certain number of years, not only is everyone in their family in Scientology, but they often will get into a business that's owned or run by Scientologists and then leaving has just catastrophic, you know, uh, ramifications for them because they not only will lose all their friends and their family, they may lose a business. And I've talked to numerous Scientologists that had, that went through that and had to completely rebuild their lives simply because they decided to leave. Yeah. And to some extent, you're not going to see that in Mormonism outside of heavily concentrated Mormon areas. But if you're in Utah or Idaho or a few other select locations, the, there's so you know the the religion is so uh, predominant in those areas that if one 
has doubts or leaves the church or steps away and distances themselves, it can have employment ramifications. It can have uh, deep social ramifications. And to some extent, I, I mean, I hear stories every day from folks I interact with that their family have disassociated with them to some extent. And, and it's not, it's not that Mormonism directly tells its members to do that, but it does say it kind of, uh, more subtly where if something's not faith building, if something's not building your, your testimony in the church, then you should distance yourself from that thing. Um, I also wanted to, to ask you too, Scientology seems to have a unique language and I think Mormonism does as well. And I think it's one of the things that distinguishes Mormonism uh, from the rest of Christianity is that a lot of the words that the rest of Christianity uses, we may use those words, but they'll have a different meaning. And then we've also just got our own unique vocabulary. And I wondered if that kind of a thing exists within Scientology. I think it does, but I wanted you to speak to that. Yeah. Oh boy. I mean, that is a, a one of the sort of key characteristics of high control groups. But uh, Scientology, I mean, I've been talking to Scientologists for 22 years, and I have a certain understanding of the language. And it, when I'm first talking to an ex-Scientologist I've never spoken to, it'll, it'll get them laughing because they're not used to an outsider or a reporter actually being familiar with the terms. And I know all the acronyms and stuff. And they feel, that, that actually makes them very comfortable with me because I generally know what they're talking about. But, boy... You get two, you get two Scientologists talking to each other. And it's even hard for me to keep up sometimes with all the references and the inside language that they use because they definitely have different terms for everything. Uh, and you know, L. Ron Hubbard, they call him source. Uh, everything comes from his writings and he, he, he knew that this was a, a good way to sort of separate people out and keep them under his control was to make sure that they had a language outsiders couldn't understand. Uh, and, and, and just a real alphabet soup of acronyms. And, uh, and some of them are just, you know, very, very simple differences, but others are, I mean, you know, when they start talking about being PTS in the middle class, I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> There's some very odd terms and, 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 uh, concepts, uh, in Scientology. Uh, but they, but, but, but it also had, the, I think the other difference though with maybe from Mormonism or Christianity is, they have a science gloss. It's like, it's like, um, if somebody whose ideas about science came, and in fact, I'm not, the, I'm not making this up. Somebody else, uh, I can't remember if it was Martin Gardner or somebody back in the day said that basically L. Ron Hubbard had a, a reader's digest understanding of science. And then he tried to make it sound like he was an expert. And that's when you end up with these bizarre terms that, uh, sound scientific, but they really aren't. You hit on L. Ron Hubbard, and I'm I'm aware of his prolific work as a science fiction writer in in the first half of his life or the first third of his life, and and how you know you and I can step outside of that paradigm and kind of see the connection of him doing that work and it it leading to uh, the creation of Scientology, but. I'm curious because in Mormonism, we've got our founder, Joseph Smith, and Joseph uh, has all this early involvement in treasure digging, in using uh, divining rods and peep stones and uh, drawing magic circles and sacrificing animals. And uh, there, there's so much of that. And yet, if you were to poll a thousand active Latter-day Saints, you'd be lucky 
if one or two understand what you're talking about, if you were to talk about that kind of history. And yeah. And so you would sense that in Mormonism, one of the things that we do as an institution is we very much shield our members from knowing the deeper, more complex narrative that's right there in the historical data, but that but that for some reason, everybody seems to either, we don't talk about it at church, and everybody seems to sense that the church gives you all the information you need, so there's no need to really go home and look it up. And not that Mormons are discouraged from using the internet. They really aren't. Like there's a, there's a, a an idea that, um, the glory of God is intelligence, and the more educated we are, the better we are. But I think most Mormons feel like the church is the true church, so why would it not give them the full story? And so there's no need to kind of dive deeper and find anything. And I'm curious if I cross over here to Scientology, is there, is there any awareness among Scientologists generally of what Ron, L. Ron Hubbard's work was early on and the connection that it may have with their faith? Yeah, it's interesting. There's some parallels and some differences. I'll say that, uh, Mormonism has Fawn Brody and Scientology has Russell Miller. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Well, Fawn Brody is my favorite biographer of all time. For, really for, good. And, and I'll tell you, just to stop you before you give that answer, Fawn Brody used to be criticized so heavily as this anti-Mormon, even though she's the niece of our, of, of the prophet at the time, she, she was designated kind of as this anti-Mormon. Everybody kind of walked away from her. Her work was slandered. And only recently with another scholar who's faithful and in the church, Richard Bushman, um, he has acknowledged that her work is is a precipice high watermark of its time and and that we ought to maybe take a second look because most of the stuff she published was factual even if she drew some conclusions on her own that is kind of outside the box for what a historian is supposed to do right but i love her also for her burton biography and and other things that she did but anyway so the thing with hubbard is that uh yeah in the 30s and 40s he was a he was a very well regarded pulp fiction writer but a lot of westerns, adventures, fantasy, and and science fiction, which he actually was not his favorite, but for some reason, it's he's become most well known for the science fiction stuff. And um, uh, Scientologists revere him, and they are encouraged to uh, to read about his exploits and and the idea that Hubbard lived a, a life of, of twelve men. Is, is really promoted within the church that he was this adventurer. He was in the Explorers Club. He was, uh, you know, he, he, he was, uh, mapping mineral deposits in the Caribbean when he was only, wasn't even 20 years old. He was, uh, breaking wild bronx at four or five years old. He was blood brother to Indian chiefs and all this stuff is, Scientologists are very much encouraged to absorb all that. What they're not asked to look at are the books and articles that debunk all that and, and, and show that, that none of that is true. And he was, I mean, he was a pulp fiction writer. He, he not, not only did he make up fantastic tales about science fiction and, and the old West, he made up fantastic tales about himself. He exaggerated virtually everything about himself. So Scientologists are told that he was this World War II hero that virtually won the war on his own. He was the first casualty, American casualty, in the Pacific Theater. He was the uh, uh, skipper of corvettes, uh, these ships that that and he personally sunk two Japanese submarines. 
Uh, he was machine gunned at one point and was, uh, in a raft, uh, that, and, and had to survive to Australia. Uh, all these amazing tales of this man who ultimately ended up in the hospital at the end of the year, uh, at the end of the war with a broken back and machine gun wounds. And he came up with Dianetics to heal himself. And that's the basis, the bedrock of what this whole movement is about that L. Ron Hubbard healed himself with these amazing scientific techniques he's now given the world. Well, none of it is true. I mean, he had a pathetic World War II experience. He, um, he got, he got fired from every, uh, commanding position he had. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was, he was given a ship to refurbish in Boston Harbor. Uh, and as soon as it was refurbished, he was fired. And, and, and it's in his records that, that, uh, his superior officer said, this guy is not fit for command. But then he ended up with another ship. He was a lieutenant in the Navy. He ended up with a ship in Oregon. And, uh, they thought they were, they had spotted some Japanese submarines and they spent 40 or 50 hours or something depth charging these submarines. And it turns out there were no submarines and the Navy determined that they had been depth charging a magnetic deposit on the seafloor. He, he sailed south from there down to, uh, down the coast and then opened fire, uh, for target practice on a Mexican island, which caused an international incident. Mexico was really angry about it and he lost that command. He ended up in the hospital at the end of the war, not for breaking his back or being machine gunned because he had hemorrhoids and he had, uh, arthritis in a knee or something and, and he had a uh, pink eye. Uh, you know, the, 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 the problem for Hubbard is, he made up all these great tales, but we have the actual records. Um, and so, uh, yes, as Fawn Brody was to Joseph Smith, so was this British journalist Russell Miller, who came out with this book in 1987 called Barefaced Messiah, which really went through and debunked all of the Hubbard myths. And he, Russell Miller is hated by Scientologists. Uh, and even ex-Scientologists, when they come out, have sometimes have a hard time picking up that book. They don't really want to know the whole truth about Hubbard. But he was a very he was very much a tall tale teller. And so Scientologists definitely are shielded from all that. The other thing I've noticed uh is now Scientology has an official website. It's very, you know, voluminous and it's got lots of stuff about Ron and and they are obsessed with producing their own official biography of Hubbard year by year. And they put these they put out these slick encyclopedias about him. And every little thing about, you know, his writing career and, and, and stuff, it's all, of course, you know, made to look as pretty as possible. And what I've noticed in recent years is, uh, they've gone to great lengths to erase his family. Uh, Hubbard was married three times, but he had seven children by three different women. Uh, and you can't find a word about any of his three wives or any of his seven children in the thousands of pages of Scientology's website. Which I find really amazing, uh, uh, because actually one of his children is still in Scientology. Diana, uh, his oldest living daughter is, is, is still, uh, uh, working out at the, in base in the Sea Org. She's very dedicated to Scientology, but not a word about her, uh, in the official biographies of him. Yeah, hemorrhoids and pink eye doesn't make for a great, uh, great right. narrative, does it? Right. No. Uh, as you say some of these things, they're making connections with me in Mormonism. Uh, Joseph Smith certainly tells some really, uh, big stories at times about things he's experiencing. But when it comes to his life itself, well, his own, his own experience, 
I feel like to some extent he kind of dies without really being able to kind of tell this grandeur story of himself other than maybe some of his spiritual experiences. It, it feels like the church came in right after his death and from there until present day decided how it was going to tell the story. And as you point to the idea that you, a Scientologist doesn't get the information on L. Ron Hubbard's family, this very thing is so weird in Mormonism, right? So Joseph doesn't have three wives at different times. Joseph has 33 wives at the same time. And in the midst of that, these women, some of them play really crucial parts in other places of our history. But if you're an active Latter-day Saint going to church on Sunday, you'll hear these women mentioned in terms of the other historical events they're involved in. But you as a Latter-day Saint are never even told that that's one of his wives. It, it's the strangest thing, and it just hits me right now as we're talking, how odd of a mechanism that is to tell the members of your faith historical stories of, let's say, a dozen women at various points throughout your history, and to never mention in any manual, any conversation, that this was a wife of the prophet Joseph Smith. And so you grow up knowing these women played a role in church history, but you would be completely oblivious to these women being Joseph's actual wife, you know, while he's alive on the earth. And that seems like there's no other way than to see that as intentional, that there's some intent on telling the story a certain way and withholding real important basic facts back from the story. And anyway, I just want to draw that connection for listeners because I think any listener listening to this, obviously they're all going to be Latter-day Saints. Some of them are in, some of them are out, but they're going to recognize right away like, yeah, I was told that Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner did this. I know you won't know these people, uh, Tony, but Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner or Lucinda Harris or Eliza R. Snow. And we get these stories about these women and yet they're the wives of Joseph Smith and we never get told that. And it just seems... Again, I'm just coming to kind of uh, come to grips with this just as we're talking. It just seems so intentional. I do want to talk a moment about the Sea Org. In Mormonism, I, th- I think it's this kind of mechanism is um, certainly not on the grandeur that Scientology does it. But Mormonism takes its 19-year-old kids, its uh, actually 18-year-old boys now and 19-year-old girls, and teaches them that you know going on a mission is a great thing and and for the boys, it's almost an obligation. And so these kids pay for their own way. They go out for two years, and they're assigned by the church leadership to go out. And there's a ton of rules they have to follow. And these two years of being out is as much about converting them solidly within the faith as it is to bring people into the fold. And I just wonder if maybe you could speak to the Sea Org. And maybe that's not the right one to talk about. Maybe there's some other mechanism that really connects a young adult to Scientology early on and gives them kind of a a real solid foundation within the faith. Would you mind speaking to some of that? Sure. Well, let me let me give you a little history and to show about the development of the Sea Org. Maybe it'll help you see the parallels to Mormonism. Um, Hubbard uh, had uh, kept moving around. He uh, uh, started Dianetics in in New Jersey. Uh, started Scientology a couple of years later in, in Arizona. Um, 
ultimately kind of made the center of things Washington DC in 55 but he was running into problems with the American government and and mainly it was because uh back then in the 50s the FDA was a lot more serious about health claims today if you make wacky health claims you get a TV series back then you got in trouble with the law and so they he he had to leave the United States he was just tired of all the harassment what he perceived as harassment from the from the government he went to England and uh he got an estate there and, and did really well from about 59 to 66. Real heyday for Scientology then. Young people come from all over the world to spend time with him in, in his East Grinstead estate. But then the British government started getting into his affairs, and they were unhappy about what Scientology was. So in 1966, he decided um, that he was going to take to sea. Because remember, he was a Navy veteran. Uh, I think in part he kind of realized that his World War II experience was really miserable, and here was maybe a chance to, for a do-over, right? And so he launched his own private navy uh, in 1967. It ended up being three ships. The main ship, his flagship, was called uh, uh, the, the the Apollo. What's his original? Uh, uh, blanking on its original name, but anyway, ultimately it became known as the Apollo. And he staffed that, those three ships with about 300 young people, and they became known as the Sea Organization because they were literally at sea. And he was sailing from port to port in the Mediterranean. He would go to went to Greece for quite a while, which is why they all the ships ended up with the names of Greek gods, Diana, Apollo, and uh, um, Athena. And uh, he would do auditing on the ship. He was you know developing these upper levels of the, of the bridge at that time. Uh, they would get into some intrigue with the local government. They'd have to leave. They went to another port. Uh, ultimately, he got sick of it because they were at sea from 67 to 75, eight years, right, around various ports in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. And he came back. He finally decided, let's, I want to go back to the United States. And they invaded the town of Clearwater, Florida, and, and, and surreptitiously took it over. They sent in these agents who said they were with the United Churches of Florida and started buying buildings there. So the sea organization moved to land. But by then, that whole organization was set, that, that Hubbard was surrounded by these young people who carried out every order with a military style, and they actually had naval ranks, right? There were corporals and captains and whatever. So, and that's the case to this day. So you have this hardcore group. Today it's maybe three or 4,000 people. It's mainly concentrated in Clearwater, Florida and Los Angeles, California. And they run these these major operations. Like if you're an upper-level Scientologist and you're doing something called OT6 or OT7, the only place in the world you could get that special auditing is at the base in Clearwater, Florida, which is run by these Sea Org uh, people. So they they are incredibly dedicated. They sign billion-year contracts because, you know, the basic idea of Scientology is that you are, you are an immortal being called a Thetan which has lived countless times in the past and will live countless times in the future. And this just happens to be the life you're in now. And so that's why they signed a billion-year contract promising to come back lifetime after lifetime working for the church. Uh, and so that's what the Sea Org is. It's very hardcore. These people work 365 days a year. They work 112-hour weeks. They get paid between $25 and $50 a week, but they get paid at all. They live in dormitories. They eat crappy food. It's an incredibly uh, austere and difficult existence, and most of them burn out eventually and, and, and leave. 
uh, after so many years. So that's that's what the C organization is. And also, the other kind of interesting thing about it, I find, is that when you're the Sea Org, you're so busy working day and night and only getting a few hours of sleep a night. You know what you don't have time for? You don't have time for Scientology. You know, these people, you know, this, one of the things why they get in, one of the attractions to the Sea Org is that you're supposed to be able to get your courses for free because, you know, who can afford $800 an hour for auditing? So they join the Sea Org thinking, great, I'll, I'll be able to go up the bridge, uh, you know, without spending all that money, but then they don't have time for it. I mean, Mark Headley, for example, was in Scientology for something like 15 years uh, out at the base, and by the time he left, he still had never done more than a, you know, a couple of courses. So uh, that's an odd thing. The other thing that uh, you mentioned, you know, the young men that go out on missions, they start uh, recruiting, uh, especially second-generation Scientologists, children, at a very young age. A lot of Scientologists who were to Sea Org will tell you they signed their contract at 12, 13, or 14 years old. I've actually talked to former Scientologists who signed their Sea Org contract at 6 and 7 years old. Signed a contract promising to work for the church for a billion years at 6 years old. And uh, they actually used to have this sort of hierarchy where if you were under the age of you know 13 or something, they had a thing called the Cadet Org. Where, you know, the kids would sort of pretend to be Sea Org members. And then when they got old enough, they joined the Sea Org itself. They got rid of that. But they're still signing people very young age. Uh, and, you know, they don't, they don't get any schooling. Uh, there's a court case right now working its way through the courts in Los Angeles. A young woman who joined the Sea Org at 12 and at that point was working 90 hours a week and, uh, ultimately, uh, left and it was suing them for abuse. And the church said in its court papers, look, you know, we consider them ministers. And as long as we consider the ministers, we can do whatever we want to them. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's to an extreme. And, and again, I see some connections, but not, not to that degree. Um, I do want to talk. We've got a few minutes left. I, I want to, co- to cover just a couple little things. I, I think they're little things maybe, but I know in the scheme of life, they're going to seem really big. One thing I notice when a Latter-day Saint reads or watches this information on Scientology, one of the comments I always hear is, I cannot believe these people spend this much money on this thing. And I know like Scientologists are taking these courses, they're doing this auditing. And over the course of a lifetime, a, you know, the, the median average Scientologist is spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, probably hundreds of thousands by the end of their life. And, and as a Latter-day Saint, I've seen these people looking at this situation going, I cannot believe they do that. But that same mechanism exists within Mormonism, right? Mormons pay 10% of their gross income as tithing. And and so the average Latter-day Saint over the course of their lifetime is probably spending somewhere in the same neighborhood. Um, maybe speak for just a moment about the financial commitment that Scientologists make. Well, I think what freaks people out about Scientology is, is it literally has a price list, <laughs> you know, and we have copies of them and, and they're just stunning. You know, the, I, I, as I mentioned, the auditing is sold in 12 and a half hour packages of, of, of called intense and uh, intensives, uh, intensives at flag that, uh, top base and Clearwater run six or seven thousand dollars each. And you may need six or seven of them to get through a particular auditing level. Mark Headley has estimated, Mark Headley is one of these longtime former, you know, executives of the church, really, you know, really knows his stuff. He has estimated that to go from the very beginning 
to the very top of what's called the bridge of total freedom. And it, it takes, you can do it somewhat quickly. If you really work hard, you can get through it in, you know, several years. But for most people, I think it takes more like 15 or 20 years. But you can, go, but to get to from the very bottom of the bridge to the top, Mark Headley estimates it's going to cost you between 500,000 and $2 million. Because it's not just the cost of the course. You're constantly being hit up for uh, donations. You're constantly being asked to increase the level of your donations. And when you, like, when you go to flag to do a particular auditing level or a particular thing like the L rundowns or superpower, you have to, you know, you have to be there for a couple of months. So you're paying for accommodations. You might be paying for the rest of your family to be there as well and all the meals. And, you know, Jason Begay told me, this, this actor who, who was a former Scientologist, so I'd, I'd sign up for this $20,000 course. And I'd go out there and I'd come back $200,000 lighter because it was, it cost so much money for everything else. Leah Remedy, after she tried to turn in the leader of the church, after his behavior at the wedding of Tom Cruise, uh, she wrote him up in a knowledge report. And, uh, the church, you know, he was so angry about it, the church forced her to go, ordered her to go to the flag land base for interrogations. They lasted three months and they billed her $300,000. So the prices in Scientology are just ludicrous. And I think that's why they lost taxes and status in 1967 was that they had these price lists that were very high, and it all seemed to be benefiting one man, Elbert Hubbard. They managed to go to war with the IRS, and, and, the, and the IRS caved in 1993 and gave them back their taxes of status. But today, the prices are higher than ever. Yeah, it is crazy. Um, I want to I finish off talking about dissenters for a moment, but I do at least want to make one connection to the listener, which is you and I as we look at Scientology and as we've read up on it and studied it, you realize like the theology is, is kind of unique and maybe is a soft word. And I don't mean to be rude, but there's some things in the theology that are crazy. Not that there aren't crazy things in Mormonism as well. Like, right. We believe God lives on a planet near a star named Kolob off in the, often somewhere in the universe. And, and that kind of sounds crazy to an outsider as an outsider to Scientology. The theology sounds kind of crazy, and yet the average Scientologist starts off getting these norm, what, what appears to be normal sessions of helping them deal with life and get better and more educated at being out in the world in, in whether it's employment or family. And they don't learn the, <clears throat> they don't learn the theology until way later, correct? I mean, I just, I just, just kind of a yes or no, are they, is that? Yeah, correct? that's, yeah, that's always been one of the things I've criticized is that you know, a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim can explain the basis of their religion in a couple of minutes. But with Scientology, you don't learn for seven or eight years. And only after you're a couple hundred thousand dollars in, do you learn the full story of what this whole thing is about. Right. And, and within Mormonism, I think you get the basic theology pretty quickly. But what happens that I think is a corollary to Scientology is that it's only after you've established that you are in the tribe and you are willing to do what the tribe asks you to do, are you encouraged or invited to then participate in extra things that add extra awareness or understanding of the theology? So a Mormon would have to be an active Latter-day Saint for at least a year, which isn't a long time, but would have to establish their loyalty and their commitment 
before they'd be invited to go to a Mormon temple and to learn more things there. And then what most Mormons don't know is that there is an extra ritual that for those who move higher up into leadership, um, who end up getting some kind of relationship with very important leaders within Mormonism, at that point they're invited to another ritual, which is called the second anointing, and it kind of locks them even more into their commitment uh, with the tribe. And I hope I'm not saying any of that in a way that's offensive. I'm, I'm just trying to draw this connection. But I want to end, um, Tony, talking a little bit about dissenters and how Scientology handles that. And, and I'll give you the Mormon thing that's going on, and you can kind of tell me the, the similarity and maybe go further in how the Church of Scientology handles those who are critical or whether in the church or out of the church. But with Mormons, there is a group at church leadership called the Strengthening Church Members Committee, the SCMC. Again, we have these acronyms, right? And they mean something. And so there's this group of members at church headquarters who essentially their responsibility, and there are two of the top 15 leaders who are also on this committee and overseeing this group of people, they essentially look on the internet, look in newspapers, look, you know, anywhere social media or in physical uh, papers written or documents. They're looking for dissenters and they're essentially keeping a record of that. And they tie that responsibility back to our early scriptures that as a church, we are to keep a good record of both our critics as well as our own history and they use that as kind of permission to carry this out. And so there are times where members of this committee, I, I know of one example, a, a guy went by the name of Pat. Let me let that ring. It's going to voicemail. I'll pick it up. Give me a second here. There's a, a guy by the that goes under the name of Pasco Wellington, and he infiltrates some of the progressive Mormon groups. And he essentially is key. And, and that's not what his real name is. We don't know who this person really is. But they keep a record of everything that's being said and talked about. And eventually that information is then shared with the local leaders of some of these members that are in the groups. And that information is then used to initiate a disciplinary council and to have these people account for what they've said and then to enact some discipline, disfellowship, excommunication, whatever word, every, every religion kind of has their unique word. In Mormonism, they would excommunicate them, which is to essentially remove them from the membership. And I'm curious how Scientology handles dissenters both in and out and what mechanisms they have in place to kind of keep track of that. And we'll kind of end on, I guess, that question. And then I want to give you a few moments here just to talk about some of your work. Well, it sounds like it's somewhat similar. I think if you want to understand Scientology and how that part works, you just sort of think about the East German Stasi, you know, I mean, it's, it's about as bad as it gets as far as you know, snitching, surveillance, uh, Scientologists are always looking over their shoulder and worried and not, not so much, you know, they're worried about what they're doing on social media, but worried within their own household that their own kids might turn them in or their spouse. And, uh, because Scientologists are taught to do that. So, um, uh, if they, you know, uh, say, I, I remember, uh, talking to a, a man, who admitted, who dared to tell his own daughter that he had seen a Nightline episode that talked about Scientology. And all he did was, did you see it? What did you think of it? She wrote up a knowledge report 
He was interrogated. He was kicked out of Scientology. He And he was a field auditor. This is a guy who made a living bringing in new people to Scientology and moving them on to the uh, uh, up the bridge. He lost his house. He lost his business. He lost, His wife got uh, divor- you know, divorced him. His daughters cut off contact with him. All because he dared to ask one of his daughters if she'd watched an episode of Nightline. And all Scientologists have heard these stories. They all know that that's possible. And that's why they're so paranoid and why they're so, they're so good at policing themselves. You get hauled into an interrogation. Uh, and remember, they, they believe that the machine is infallible. And as long as they believe that, it's an incredible interrogation tool. Um, and so they spill their guts about everything. And then the, then what happens is the church will decide to declare them suppressive. Uh, a suppressive person is the worst thing that you can be called in Scientology. It's a, it's essentially like excommunication, but it's so exploitative because they hold it over people's heads because once somebody is declared SP, everyone else in the Church of Scientology knows they have to cut off all ties with that person or they risk being declared SP themselves simply for communicating with them. And this, this means your own family members. So we have an audio tape, for example, at my website of a woman learning from a young guy. And, you know, these these ethics, they call them ethics officers, this wonderful Orwellian term Hubbard came up with is ethics, which is his uh, euphemism for control. So we have, they tend to be young, right, sort of children of the corn thing. So you got this young guy who's the master at arms at the Clearwater land, uh, Flag Land Base, and he's talking to this woman about what came up in her interrogation that she had watched Leah Remedy on television, uh, some other things. And you hear it on the audio tape, and, and she's realizing he's about to declare her. And she's pleading with him. She's trying to bargain with him. And ultimately, yeah, he says, no, you're being declared. And she says to him, do you know what you're doing in my life? My husband is going to have to divorce me. Because her husband was very much into the church. Uh, and it turns out she went home. I interviewed them about this, and it's incredible audio tape. We actually hear this process going on. And she goes home and she, and her husband immediately realized, you got declared, didn't you? And she said, yeah. And she knew that he was going to have to divorce her. And he said, well, I'd rather be with you than with the church if that's the case. And he stood by her side. It's an amazing story. Uh, they're a wonderful couple, but they, but they ended up losing they, their, their business. All their clients were Scientologists. They lost that business. They had to move out of the state. The so Scientology's, uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, it's called disconnection is super harsh. I, I know other, I know some lately, some Scientologists have started calling it shunning to kind of try to make it sound like they know what goes on in the other churches, but I don't know that it's as, as, as exploitative and, and, and final, uh, as it is in Scientology. Uh, disconnection is toxic. I mean, it, you know, the, some of the children that have been separated from their parents, uh, because one of them has been declared SP. It's, and I, I don't understand why David Miscavige thinks this is a good strategy because all he's doing is driving people away. Scientology is shrinking so rapidly. I mean, we we have good evidence from recent defectors that there are probably less than 20,000 Scientologists active in the world today. It's a really small organization. And part of the reason is that this disconnection policy is so harshly meted out. At its peak, Tony, how many people were there? I think in the I think around the year 1990, it got to its largest extent. And it was probably about 100,000. They've never had the millions that they claim. Never. I mean, I found, I found a 1969 article in the New York Times where they were claiming 15 million members. And then just a few years later, a few years later, they were claiming 6 million. 
So, you know, what happened to the nine? You know, uh, Mormonism is like what, about 30 million, right? And, and, and the thing is, if you, especially, you know, if you live in certain cities, I, I, I lived in, in, in the Phoenix area for a while and, and, and even here in New York, you're going to run into Mormons. I mean, they're, they're all over the place, right? It, it's a, it's a large growing organization. When was the last time you ran into a Scientologist? I mean, it just doesn't happen because they don't have the numbers that they claim. They actually put out a TV ad in 2012 claiming that they were getting 4.4 million new people a year. I mean, it's just ludicrous. So, but we, you know, at one point they had about 100,000 and it's, it's almost all concentrated in, uh, in the Clearwater, Tampa Bay area, in Florida and in Los Angeles. Very small pockets in other cities. Yeah, Mormonism is interesting. Mormonism claims about 16 million members, but the, the trouble is about a third of those are believed to actually be attenders at church. And the other thing they find is the church will claim it has so many members in, let's say, Venezuela, let's say Puerto Rico. And when the government or some other entity goes in and does a a survey or a study and ask these people to self-identify themselves the numbers end up being about a tenth of what the church is claiming. So on some level, I agree with you, there's way more Mormons than there are Scientologists. And I think the the LDS church is distorting those numbers way less than what Scientology does. And it may in some ways say like, hey, these people are baptized, they're on the rolls, so we're going to count them. But the reality is if we actually ask people to self-identify what religious faith they are, the number of people identifying as Latter-day Saint or Mormon is a, a minuscule number compared to the number the church reports uh, in those areas. And, and then when you say the word suppressive, my word is apostate. And so as soon as somebody is labeled an apostate, you quickly run into um, members of the church distancing themselves, not wanting to have conversations, divorces happen, children won't talk to their parents. And it's not this outward thing in Mormonism. It's much more subtle again, but there is a lot of that behavior that happens um, I just want to finish letting you kind of talk for a moment. Uh, tell people a little bit about your website and tell people a little bit about your, your book, your book you've written and where they can get that. And, uh, and just want to thank you again for being on today. To give you that sure. To this is, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's fun to, you ask very different questions. I really enjoy it. I, my website is, uh, TonyOrtega.org. It's called The Underground Bunker. I'm, I'm the only journalist who covers Scientology on a daily basis. I kind of gave myself that job of beat reporter for Scientology. And a wonderful commenting crew there. Lots of ex-Scientologists that know a lot more about it than I ever will. And, and we break a lot of news there. A lot of big news gets break, broken about Scientology there. My book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, uh, I, I wrote about a particular person. Her name is Paulette Cooper. She's a journalist who wrote one of the, one of the very first books about Scientology back in 1971. And she was targeted for Scientology's fair game, which is something we didn't really talk about too much. But when somebody does leave the church and they, become a suppressive person. Uh, if they continue to speak out about the church, they can be targeted with just amazingly severe retaliation, and it's called fair game. And, and fair game has also been aimed at journalists and some other people. Uh, and nobody got a more elaborate, uh, lengthy campaign of terror like Paulette Cooper. And so that, that's what my book is about, is, is basically her entire life. And... Uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 she's an amazing person, and uh, I hope I captured her life pretty well in that book. Where can people get that? That's Amazon. Gotcha. Unbreakable Miss Lovely. Gotcha. And just as a closing note, I think progressive or liberal 
Mormons as well as ex-Mormons or post-Mormons is another way to say it. And, and also I think other high demand fundamentalist religions, Jehovah Witnesses, post-Mormons or liberal Jehovah Witnesses, as they dive into their own history and realize the messiness and the mechanisms that are in place, I got to tell you, Tony, I think we're, we're all heavily drawn to look at Scientology because it seems like it's those same mechanisms, but in the extreme, and it gives us kind of this place to look for some sense of validation for what we discovered and, and found in our own religion. And I just want to say, I, I, everywhere I turned to learn about Scientology, everybody kept telling me I had to interview Tony Ortega. And I just want to say thank you for sitting down with us today and for having this conversation and appreciate so much you giving us your time. Well, I hope it's helpful. I really enjoyed it. Say what?